long one? No, um, it, it shouldn't be. It's an exciting one. That's what it is as we uh, launch into our new series in the book of Nehemiah, as Jonathan has said. And it, it, is a, it is a significant book. It may not be a book that we turn to regularly. It may be a book that uh, if you've been around church for any length of time, you may have heard Nehemiah preached on. Um, my, my experience of Nehemiah has been when there's a building project to do, well, let's, let's look to a book of the Bible, which is all about a building project. Um, but that, there's so much more that God has to say to us through this wonderful uh, portion of Scripture, his inspired, timeless, eternal word. And so um, I do just want to begin, if you could flick my laptop on, thank you, Tim. I do want to begin just by reading uh, the first few verses of Nehemiah. If you have your Bible there or have it on a device, please do uh, turn with me to Nehemiah chapter 1. We're going to consider the whole of the first chapter uh, today, the, the first 11 verses of this great book. Um, but as Jonathan said, what I would love to do first is start right at the beginning and then actually help us to see how Nehemiah as a book and as a story, as a narrative, as a piece of history fits into the whole redemption story of God. And so we will be doing, I, I'm going to try to, my mind works well by visualizing that as a timeline, uh, hence this stuff. So hopefully that will be helpful for you um, if you're able to read my handwriting. So let's begin just by reading the first two verses of Nehemiah, this wonderful book in God's word. So let's hear the word of God together. The words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. In the month of Kislev, in the 20th year, I was in the citadel of Susa. Hanani, one of my brothers, came from Judah with some other men, and I questioned them about the Jewish remnant that had survived the exile and also about Jerusalem. Okay, we'll pause there, and straight away we can see from the opening of this book that we are being welcomed into quite a particular story uh, about a specific moment in history, uh, and there's a clear context that we need to understand. Otherwise, I think if we, if we just dive in and read this book as if it is, as Jonathan said earlier, as if it is written directly to us, which of course it is, as God's eternal word, he speaks to us through it. But to understand what he is up to in this book, we need to understand how it fits into his grand story of redemption history. So this is God's eternal and inspired word. It is not just a, an interesting historical narrative. It's not just a personal memoir of this man, Nehemiah. It is so much more than that. So what does God have to say to us through this book? Well, to help us with that, it is always good to know how the portion of scripture that we're reading fits into uh, the wider story of God's word. And so it's important to ask questions like, who is writing? Uh, who is the human author of this book inspired by God? When are they writing? What are they writing about? What's the context that's led to this writing? Well, we can answer some of those questions very quickly. Nehemiah is written by Nehemiah. We can tell that right from the very first line of this text, the words of Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah. Wonderful. Question one answered. When are they writing? Why are they writing? Well, this starts to unfold the more we delve into the book. So we continue through verse 1, in the, night, in the month of Kislev, in the 20th year. Okay, so this is a very specific time in the course of history. The month of Kislev is about the ninth month in the Jewish calendar. We're talking somewhere around November, December-ish. So it's winter time. We're in the citadel of Susa, and it is the 20th year. Well, the 20th year of what? Well, we, we come on through chapter 2. We learn that it is the 20th year of the king who Nehemiah is serving. And that king is a man called Artaxerxes. Artaxerxes is the king of the Persian Empire. And the Persian Empire is a huge empire. It, it encompassed most of uh, Turkey, Lebanon, Israel, bits of Egypt, bits of Iraq and Iran. This was a huge empire in the ancient Near East. 
And it was a massive kingdom and a mightily successful one too. And knowing that we are in the reign of Artaxerxes' time helps us to place an exact date and an exact context on what we are reading. And so we'll come on to this a little bit more as the book unfolds. But from what we know in the 20th year of Artaxerxes, that puts this early portion of Nehemiah in about 900, or sorry, 440 BC. So 400, just over 400 years before Christ comes, Nehemiah is writing about the events that took place then. And and that is not just an interesting number. That's interesting because that shows us that Nehemiah is recording for us some of the final portions of history in the Old Testament. So about 400 years before Christ means that these are some of the final historical records of what is going on in God's people at this time. Now, Now that might seem strange just because of the physical placement of where we find Nehemiah in our Bible. So if you manage to find it quite quickly there and you open it, you notice there's a lot of the Old Testament still to come. There's all of the Psalms, all of the wisdom literature, all of the prophets still to come. But from a historical point of view, this is recording some of the last moments of um, Israel uh, as we know it before Christ comes. And that's because in in the library of Scripture, so we start off with the law. And so we've got Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is going to be a test. We should have done this as a quiz. Uh, Then after the law, we move into history. And the history books are then clumped together as the library of Scripture was brought together. And so we have Judges. No, sorry. First of all, we have Joshua. Joshua is written about 1400 BC. So you're talking a thousand years between Joshua and Nehemiah. So Joshua, Judges, then Ruth, then first and second, whoop, first and second Samuel, important books for our family, first and second Kings, and first and second Chronicles. And now when we get into this portion of history, we're getting into this stage where the writers and God is telling us about the history of Israel as the human kings are put in place. Now, I say human kings because Israel had a king. God was Israel's king, yet they asked God for a king. And so in 1 Samuel 8, well, 1 Samuel 8 through to maybe 10, uh, God gives them the first king, and the first king is called Saul. And Saul's reign is a little bit up and down like most of the kings. And after, after Saul comes David and some of the again there's highs and lows in David's reign but one of the key things that happened towards the end of David's reign um, in 2nd Samuel 6 is when he brings the ark of God to Jerusalem and Jerusalem becomes the center of God's people it becomes the the capital of Israel it becomes the holy city the city of David and so Jerusalem is established but David doesn't build the temple he wants to but he doesn't that job was left to Solomon David's son and in 1 Kings 5 through to 8-ish, we see the details of Solomon building the temple. And it is a majestic temple. And it's a majestic temple to represent the majestic God who Israel worships. And the physical temple was to represent the physical presence of God with his people. And so this is a really significant moment in the history of this nation. And so Solomon builds the temple, but just after Solomon's reign, things go south again. Again, Solomon's reign had ups and downs, but after Solomon dies, then the the kingdom splits. And the kingdom splits into the north and the south. Um, And so you can read about this um, in 1 Kings uh, 11 to 12. And in the north, ten tribes follow uh, a guy called Jeroboam, and they go north. And in the south, uh, two tribes follow Rehoboam. And Rehoboam is Solomon's son. So it's the southern kingdom that followed the Davidic line, that messianic line. 
God had promised David that he would establish an eternal throne and it is only the southern kingdom who seemed to, to follow that through. And so the division of this kingdom is a really, another really significant moment in the history of the people. God continues to speak through prophets like Elijah, for example. In the southern kingdom, he speaks Jeremiah and many others. And so God is still at work in both of these places, even though there has been such division in them. And then history continues. And if we pick up the north, the northern kingdom, um, generally speaking, the northern kingdom just have bad kings. That's a sweeping overgeneralization, but that's the case. And so they continue uh, to do what, what, what they thought was good in their own eyes, as we read in Judges. Um, but in the northern kingdom then, in 722 BC, Assyria, one of the, the mighty superpowers of the day, Assyria come and attack and besiege. And it takes a while, but they besiege Samaria, that northern part of the kingdom. The north, actually, I should have mentioned, maintains the name Israel. And the south becomes known as Judah. And so in 722 BC, the Assyrian army come in, take over Samaria and take the people to exile. And as the Assyrians did, they then moved foreigners into the area to make sure that there wasn't an uprising. And so effectively, what you have in 722 is the end of the northern kingdom of Israel. In the south, they hang on for a a while, a good nearly 200 more years. Uh, The Assyrians try to attack. There's different sieges and different bits and pieces, but eventually... In 586, and I should say, actually, in the south, it's not all bad kings. There are some wonderful kings. Hezekiah is an example. Josiah is a wonderful example. People who remain uh, sought to be faithful to God and his people and his teaching. In 786 BC, we have the eventual collapse of Jerusalem at the hand of Babylon, the hand of Nebuchadnezzar. If you remember when we looked at Daniel, King Nebuchadnezzar is the king in charge of Babylon, and he comes in and establishes uh, sorry, and uh, exiles Judah and exiles Jerusalem. Takes pretty much everyone, leaves the poorest of the poor, but takes pretty much everyone else to Babylon. And as he is beseeching and destroying this area, he destroys Jerusalem. The walls are broken down, the temple is destroyed, and so things look really bleak. Now, in and around this time, this guy Jeremiah, who's a prophet, you can read his book through the Old Testament. He's been prophesying and telling the people in the southern kingdom, if you don't turn, then the Babylonians are coming. Of course, they don't turn back to God, so the Babylonians come. But differently than the northern kingdom, the southern kingdom, the people of Judah are given hope. Jeremiah says that God God is saying that this is not the end of you, that Babylon will have a time limit, that you will return to this place. One of the most well-known verses in Jeremiah is Jeremiah 29, 11. I wonder if you know it. Can anyone tell me Jeremiah 29:11? I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Those verses come in the middle of the prophecy about the return to Jerusalem. Here is what the rest of those verses say, are wrapped around those verses. Jeremiah 29, if we read 10 to 13. This is what the Lord says. When 70 years are completed, and that's not accidental, In chapter 25, he had also mentioned 70 years coming to an end in Babylon. When 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will come to you and fulfill my good promise to bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans to prosper you and not to harm you. Plans to give you a hope and a future. Then you will call on me and come and pray to me and I will listen to you. You will seek me and find me when you seek me with all your heart. And so there's this hope given as the people are taken 
into Babylon under King Nebuchadnezzar. And the Babylonian Empire then, because God has said it, it happens. Uh, They get taken over. And in 539 BC, uh, Cyrus, who's the king of Persia, this another superpower that raises Cyrus comes. And Cyrus is important because God had said that Cyrus would come. In the middle of Isaiah's prophecy, chapters 44 and 45, Cyrus is named. God says, I'm going to raise up Cyrus and he's going to free my people. Cyrus isn't a follower of God. He's not, a, he's not, a, he's not a, a person from Judah, yet God uses him mightily. So in 539, Cyrus takes over this empire. And a year later, Cyrus has a very different understanding of how to deal with exiled people. And so he lets them go back home. He lets some of them go back home, certainly anyway. And the return home takes some stages, but the fact is that God has been faithful. His people are returning to the place that he had said would be theirs. And so Cyrus comes, uh, frees some people. You can read about that in uh, 2 Chronicles 36, the final chapter of, of Chronicles. And now that, that sort of brings us up to the historical book of Ezra. And Ezra and Nehemiah are very often twinned together. They're essentially the 100-ish year history period of the return to, to Jerusalem. And so in that story, we hear of the first people going, uh, being sent back to Jerusalem to rebuild the temple. And that happens under the leadership of a guy called Zerubbabel. Zer, uh, I haven't put enough bees in there, but you get the impression. Zerubbabel. And Zerubbabel goes back and re, with, the, with the task of rebuilding the temple. And we read in Ezra that that is completed in 516 B.C. Now that should ring some bells because the people were taken into Babylon in 586 BC. The temple is completed in 516 BC, 70 years later. Isn't God good? Isn't God faithful? This is what these big historical sweeps of the Bible teach us, is why I get excited about it. So the rubble goes back and rebuilds the temple. Uh, And it seems good, but actually it doesn't seem like much else is built. It doesn't seem like the people are settling very well. Even Jerusalem as a city isn't built. Even when Nehemiah goes back, there's nobody living in the city. It seems a bit desolate. So the second um, return happens with Ezra. And Ezra goes back with a bunch of people in the 460s-ish BC. And we know that Ezra is a significant character. So Zerubbabel has been sent back to build the temple. Ezra, we read in Ezra um, that he is a man... A teacher well-versed in the law of Moses in Ezra 7 is what we read about Ezra. So Zerubbabel was sent back to look after the temple. It seems Ezra is going back with the priests to serve in the temple and to reinstate the law among the people. And so you'd imagine then that, that it sounds like all signs seem to be good, but there's still something lacking. And so whenever Nehemiah sends for a, and receives the message that we heard earlier about this report from Jerusalem... Things don't seem to have gone well. There's 15 or 20 years until Nehemiah receives this report. And he is devastated by the report that we read in chapter 1. So there's optimism, but there's so much still to do. It seems that the people of God might be starting to return to the place of God, but they have not yet fully embraced the purposes of God. And that's part of what Nehemiah is all about. And this is the... This is the setting into which Nehemiah then questions these brothers who came back from Judah, questioned them about the Jewish remnant and who had survived the exile and about Jerusalem. And let's read the report that he hears in verse 3 of chapter 1, and we'll see his reaction in verse 4. They said to me, those who survived the exile and are back in the province are in great trouble and disgrace. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down and its gates have been burned with fire. 
When I heard these things, I sat down and wept. For some days I mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. See, and perhaps with all of this historical background, we can maybe start to understand Nehemiah's reaction now. See, Nehemiah is not just responding to the news of a building project. He's not just responding to the news of a resettlement program of exiles. He's not just responding to the news of a story of national pride in restoring the city. No, the physical state of Jerusalem is symbolic of the faith of the people. So the walls of the city lie in tatters. The faith of the people is not strong. God's people were not in God's place. They were not fully fulfilling God's purpose. So Nehemiah sat down and wept. For some days he mourned and fasted and prayed before the God of heaven. And we'll come on to see the prayer in the rest of our time in a few minutes. But let's not skip too far ahead. Nehemiah hears this report and he prays. As we said earlier, Nehemiah is sometimes known as a man of action. And that he is. He is that, but he's not only that. He's often cited as a really effective biblical leader. And and he is that, but he's not only that. Nehemiah is sometimes known as a book about the rebuilding of the walls of the city, and it is that, but it is not only that. See, ultimately, this book is about rebuilding and restoring, but not just rebuilding and restoring the walls. It's about rebuilding and restoring the people. It's about rebuilding and restoring them as the people of God, people who know their God, who worship their God, who commit to serving their God again. So yes, it's about walls, but the building of the walls finishes by the end of chapter 6. And there's 13 chapters in this book, so there's more going on in this story than just wall building. And that is why I think this book has so much to teach us today. As we read this inspired section of God's word, let's recognize that God has much to say to us through it. He has preserved this book. He has included it in his grand story of redemption. Because ultimately, this story from 400 years before Christ came is part of our story. It's part of our story as God's people today. And so wherever you find yourself on your, on your journey of faith, if you want to call it that this morning, perhaps you've, you've observed faith in others but never claimed it for yourself. Perhaps you have claimed Jesus as your Lord and Savior and you are boldly and courageously following him today, then wonderful. Perhaps you know Jesus as your Savior, but, but it feels like the, the wind has gone from your sails a bit. It feels like there's a risk of just drifting through the spiritual motions. And maybe that's got something to do with what we've been through in the last couple of years with COVID. Maybe it's something completely different that has distracted your heart and sapped the joy of your salvation. Well, wherever you are on that spectrum in your walk with God this morning, I pray that our time over the next few months with this wonderful book and in this story will help us all know the rebuilding and restoring work of God in our hearts and in our lives. See, this, my, my prayer is that he would show us what it means to be his people living in his place where he has called us to, wherever that might be, boldly living out his purpose. God's people in God's place, living for his purpose. And you see, this is good news for us, wherever you are on that spectrum. We know from Philippians 1.6 that God who began a good work in you will carry it on until completion. God is active. God is still building. God is still restoring. And so regardless of your your age or your stage in life or your stage in faith, let's look to him to hear how he can continue to rebuild and restore our hearts and our lives for his purposes, 
for his glory. And my prayer is that those are some of the things that he will teach us as we look at this wonderful story in God's word. Thank you so much. And as we continue through Nehemiah 1, can we read together this prayer that Nehemiah prays? Uh, We'll pick it up as we've read the first four verses. Let's pick it up from verse 5. So Nehemiah sat down, wept, prayed, fasted before the God of heaven. Then verse 5, then I said, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant is praying before you day and night for your servants, the people of Israel. I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly towards you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave your servant Moses. Remember the instruction you gave your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the nations. But if you return to me and obey my commands, then even if your exiled people are at the farthest horizon, I will gather them from there and bring them to the place I have chosen as a dwelling. For my name. They are your servants and your people, whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of this your servant, and to the prayer of your servants who delight in revering your name. Give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. I was cupbearer to the king. As we mentioned earlier, Nehemiah's first action here is to pray. And it is a deep and honest prayer from a heart that has been before God for a long time. Uh, Remember back in verse 1, in the month of Kislev in the 20th year, he received the report from Jerusalem. Then at the start of chapter 2, in the month of Nisan in the 20th year, and then he went into King Artaxerxes. That's a gap of about three or four months potentially. So Nehemiah has been before God for months praying. And now this this recorded prayer is here for us. So how does Nehemiah pray? What does he pray? After all of that reflection and before he takes any action, he prays. But how does he pray? What does he pray for? And what does this prayer of Nehemiah teach us about how we ought to pray to? That's what we're going to spend our time with this morning. And as we do that, I want to briefly mention six attitudes. And I know that sounds like a lot. Don't worry. Six attitudes that we see in Nehemiah's prayer that we would benefit from in our own lives. And as we're sharing this morning um, with Michael and Elizabeth, I want to encourage you, uh, every morning, every Sunday morning before the service, we gather for prayer, um, anytime from kind of half 10, 25 to 11 on, just in the back room to pray for 10 minutes or so, and then you can come in and, and get ready for the service. Um, and so please do join us if you're able to any week. That would be wonderful. But I was sharing how when we look at Nehemiah's prayer, And we fast forward to the prayer that Jesus teaches his followers to pray in Matthew 6. There's so many overlaps. And so we will compare those two prayers as we look at these six attitudes, these six characteristics that we see in Nehemiah's prayer. And those six are that Nehemiah prays worshipfully, humbly, contritely, truthfully, broadly, and specifically. And we're just going to move our way through that. But before we dive in, and based on all that we've seen so far in this story of Nehemiah, we cannot miss that this story begins with prayer. This story that we assume is about walls, we assume it's about action. As we'll come on to see, there's lots of opposition in how Nehemiah and the people overcome that. There's lots of of action to happen in this story. 
But it begins with prayer. And one of the things we'll see through these 13 chapters is Nehemiah's consistent and dedicated prayer life. This is the the longest prayer we have of Nehemiah. Sometimes, as we'll see in chapter 2, he just shoots up a quick prayer in the middle of a conversation with the king. But Nehemiah is dependent on the Lord and all that takes place. Right from this moment through to going to Jerusalem, to seeing the walls rebuilt, to seeing the people recommit to the covenant, to return then to, to reform the commitment to the covenant. All of that is based on Nehemiah's prayer. prayers. And so the rebuilding and restoring work of God, it must begin with us in prayer. Coming before God, not driving ahead in our own action plan, thinking we know how to sort out our relationship with the Father. No, he knows us. He is king. If this sweep of history shows us anything, it is that we serve and worship the sovereign king. And so before we take action to try to rebuild and restore ourselves and our faith and how how much we can prove ourselves to God, let's just come before him in honest, worshipful, humble, contrite, truthful, broad, specific prayers. And he will work by his word and in his spirit. And so let's look at how we see this prayer. Let's think firstly about how Nehemiah comes worshipfully. Look in verse 5 at how he addresses God who he's coming before. So he's coming in prayer. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps his covenant of love with those who love him and keep his commandments. Again in verse 10, we see him say that uh, when he's talking about the people whom you redeemed by your great strength and your mighty hand. And so firstly, when we're thinking about coming to God in prayer, we must recognize who we're coming before. Jesus reminded his followers of praying in this way too, didn't he? In Matthew 6 verse 9, Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name. That's not just an introduction to rush through, to get to the meat of the prayer. No, that is an encouragement to stand with the right posture to say, hallowed be your name. Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God. We see it through the Psalms. We see it through the prayers of Paul in the New Testament. When we come to prayer, let's remember who we're communicating with. Let's remember whose presence we're welcomed into. Whose ear we have the attention of. Isn't this incredible? The God of heaven, the great and awesome God, hears our prayers. So let's come worshipfully. And as we do... Won't that lead to that second attitude where we come humbly? When we recognize who we're coming to, how dare we come in any other attitude other than humbly? Nehemiah says in verse 6, that God, it asks that God would, be, would hear the prayer of him, his servant. That language of servant coming before his God. I find this really interesting in verse 6. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer your servant makes. Nehemiah asks that God's ears would be open. We might understand that, but his eyes would be open to see, to hear the prayer. He doesn't say to see the prayer. He says, your eyes open to hear the prayer. It gives me the sense that Nehemiah wants to see, wants God to see him as he's praying, to see Nehemiah's desperation, to see Nehemiah's heartfelt desire and his true motives for coming to prayer. Nehemiah is laying his whole self before God. Look, Lord, see me here. Hear my prayer. And he does so humbly as God's servant. You see, when we come before the great and awesome God, we see that his ways, of course, are best. The great and awesome God, of course, his ways are best. 
And so this echoes into Jesus' prayer for us, doesn't it? Or Jesus' prayer that he instructs us to pray. Matthew 6, verse 10, your kingdom come, your will be done. As we recognize you, our Father, hallowed be your name, you have your way, because your way is going to be best. And that's a challenge to us, because I, I, I might think that my little kingdom is important. I might think that my will, my desires are strong. But when it comes to the goodness and the greatness of God, then it's his kingdom we want to see. It's his will, which will be best. And so we come humbly. Your kingdom come, your will be done. Thirdly, we come contritely. See, as we see the the strength and the might of God, it's it's as if our sin becomes clearer, doesn't it? When we see his purity and his holiness, we become so aware of our unworthiness before him. And so we need to lay that before him again. Jesus modeled this for us, didn't he? Forgive us our our sins, forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And so we come in confession. We come pleading for God's forgiveness, knowing the truth that he is faithful and just and will forgive us. What a gracious and merciful God we come before, but we must recognize that he is holy. And as we come in our strength, in our own self, we are not. As we'll come to see the table and the the wonderful sacrifice of Jesus and our acceptance of his forgiveness means we come clothed in his righteousness, but it's not a righteousness of our own. And so we come contritely, humbly confessing our prayer, our sins before him. But but notice in Nehemiah's prayer in verse 6 and 7 that he doesn't just pray for himself. So he comes and asks that God would hear his prayer On behalf of the servants, the people of Israel, I confess the sins we Israelites, including myself and my father's family, have committed against you. We have acted very wickedly toward you. We have not obeyed the commands, decrees, and laws you gave to your servant Moses. Nehemiah prays and confesses on behalf of others. And I'm not sure this is a practice that we take on that frequently, but there's clear evidence for it here. To recognize the sins of those who have gone before us and how their actions have impacted on our understanding of God, maybe on our even, even on our relationship with God, certainly on our understanding of what it means to follow God faithfully. And so we, we must confess. Now, now, it doesn't take away any uh, sense of the responsibility that Nehemiah has to confess his own sin. He says that he's coming to confess the sins that I, myself, and my father's family. He's not, he's not abdicating responsibility elsewhere, but he's certainly praying and confessing on behalf of others. We're going to do some, uh, I'm going to lead us in a, a prayer of corporate confession uh, as we come around the table to pray on behalf of us all. Um, but it's, it's, it seems like more than that, doesn't it? To confess the sins of our fathers, confess the sins of our nation. So we come worshipfully, humbly, contritely. Fourthly, we come truthfully. Um, what I mean by this is the reality that Nehemiah prays full of truth. It's not that he tells the truth. I don't mean truthfully in that way. I mean he prays words of truth. And so he knows, he brings to mind the promises and the word of God. He knows God's word and uses that to fuel his prayer. See this in verse 8. In verse 8, Nehemiah says, Remember the instruction you gave to your servant Moses. And he quotes back to God what God had promised, that if your people are in exile, I will draw them back if they turn to me and repent. Now, Now, Nehemiah calling on God to remember is not the sense that God has forgotten. 
God hasn't forgotten his promises and now that Nehemiah has reminded him, he said, oh yes, of course, I will do that now. No, it's more the sense that, I get, that, that Nehemiah is asking that God would fulfill that promise in his day. Remember what you said, Lord, make it so. And so he's praying that he would witness God's fulfillment in, that, in his day. It's that specific prayer that the people would turn back to God and therefore God would take them back to the place that he had called his name. And so that's exactly this, the place where Nehemiah finds himself. And so he's appealing that his day would be the day that God would fulfill that promise. Because his day would be the day that the people would repent. The people would come back to God. But, but what this does demonstrate for us is that Nehemiah knew the promises of God. To be able to pray them, he had to know them. And he used that knowledge of God and his word to fuel his prayer. I, I don't know if, 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 many, if any of you struggle with prayer, can't find the words to pray. I know I've been in that setting. God gives us words. He gives us example prayers. I'm, I'm reading a wonderful book through the prayers of the Apostle Paul. You can lift any of the Psalms and pray them. These are prayers for us to use. When we can't find the words or cultivate the words ourselves, let's pray the promises and the words of God. Jesus instructed us similarly to do so in praying, your will be done in Matthew 6.10. Well, if we want to pray that God's will would be done, let's know God's will. And if we want to know God's will, we find it in his word. He tells us his ways. He tells us his plans. And so let's pray that his will would be done. And when we pray that way, then his will will be done. So pray full of God's truth. Pray truthfully. Fifthly, pray broadly. Nehemiah prays in broad terms here that God would fulfill plans and purposes for his people in general. He prays on behalf of the nation. We've seen that already. He prays in verse 10 and 11 for those who are fearing or revering God's name, for those who are turning, that they would turn back in faithfulness. And so it is good to pray in those broad terms, those broad topics. We bring these, these wide-ranging issues that maybe we don't know the specifics of and we still can bring them before our God. Jesus invites us to pray that God's will would be done on earth as it is in heaven. That's a broad prayer, but it is a great prayer. Let's pray that God's will would be done in all places and in all times. Yes, please, Lord, your will be done. It's a broad prayer, but it is still a worthy prayer. It is still a prayer that God will hear and answer. So we pray broadly. And finally, sixthly, we pray specifically. See, alongside those broad and more general prayers, Nehemiah ends his prayer with a very specific and maybe even surprising request. Verse 11, after praying all this great and wonderful words and this big picture stuff, then he finishes the last sentence, give your servant success today by granting him favor in the presence of this man. Nehemiah was about to walk into a room where he knew that he needed God's help. This was a pressing and real need. We'll see more of that when we come back to chapter 2 next week. He knew he needed God's help going into the presence of Artaxerxes. But but what I find interesting is that in this whole prayer, Nehemiah hasn't prayed for the walls. He hasn't prayed for Jerusalem by name. He doesn't mention Ezra or Zerubbabel or the others who have gone back to the city already. Now, Nehemiah, we we know through the rest of the book, he is an astute man. He is a thorough man. He, He would have known of all of that other stuff that was going on. He would have been aware of all of those needs. But the specific prayer at this stage is for the next thing. 
The next thing that must be done, the first step that Nehemiah had to take was to walk into Artaxerxes' presence. And so that's the specific prayer that he brings before the Lord. Now, of course, we will see Nehemiah pray for all those other things in due course. I'm not saying it's in any way wrong to pray long-distance prayers, if you want to call them that. But the specific prayer that Nehemiah prays is for the next thing that had to happen. And so that's what he brings before God at this stage. And Jesus teaches us to do this too, doesn't he? He prays. He he teaches us to pray. Give us this day, Lord, our daily bread. Not not a week's worth of bread that we can store up. Not, Not a month's worth of bread that we can keep in storehouses. No, give us today our daily bread. Give us what we need for today, Lord. Yes, there are lots of things and big picture things that it is right and good to pray for. I'm not saying that the Bible's suggesting that we shouldn't do that. But when we're praying, we can pray specifically for the very next thing that has to happen. However big, however small, we pray specifically. So there's at least six things that we see, both from Nehemiah's prayer and we see echoed in Jesus teaching us how to pray. We pray worshipfully, humbly, contritely, truthfully. Uh, broadly and specifically and and essentially you could summarize all of those things if you wanted to into two main categories that when we pray we recognize who god is and we recognize who we are in light of that we recognize who god is and we recognize who i am before him And, and there is much more that the lord has to say to us through this passage i'm sure and so i'd encourage you to invest time in nehemiah one in fact if i could give a challenge maybe even between now and next sunday why don't you try to read through the whole book there may be a couple of chapters that you may struggle with a little bit. There's, there's a couple of chapters that are just lists of names. But read through them. They are God's word to us. Together, hopefully, we'll learn uh, what God is teaching us through them. But let's spend time, invest time in this book as God has much to say to us about how we come before him to pray. How when we long for him to rebuild and restore. And let's begin with prayer. As we embark on this new series, I do pray that the Lord would rebuild those of us who are feeling a bit broken down. I pray that he would restore to us the joy of our salvation. I pray that as we venture through these 13 chapters of God's wonderful word, that he would teach us and speak mightily to us, life-changingly to us about what it means to be God's people in God's place for God's purpose. And that we would live in the light of all of that. Let's come before him in prayer now. Oh, Lord, the God of heaven, the great and awesome God, we come before you and we can only come before you because of Jesus. We can only be welcomed into your presence because we are covered with his righteousness. He has taken our sin and our stain and has clothed us with his purity. And yet God, we come humbly, contritely. We come, Lord, confessing our sin before you, confessing our lukewarmness, our half-heartedness at times, confessing maybe even the reality that we haven't bowed the knee to you yet in salvation and repentance and faith. God, would you speak mightily and show us your wonder and your grace, your holiness, our, our need for you, for your salvation work. And Lord, we come knowing that you have much to teach us. We come claiming your word and your promises as right and true. We pray that you, through your word and by your spirit, would lead and guide our steps. Father, we pray broadly in this sense for all of us here, 
God, would you do a work in us of rebuilding and restoring? Would you gently restore those who need a gentle touch? Would you strongly give those of us who need that urge? And Father, specifically we pray, and I pray for each person here and each one not gathered with us. Lord, would you move? May we be humble before you. May we be obedient to you. May we be faithful to you. May we live passionately for you. And from today, God, we pray that you would help us to pray. Lead us, guide us, help us, we ask, for your glory. Amen.